Welcome to Distributing Solar. We speak with experts and entrepreneurs working in the off-grid solar industry around the world, bringing to life how distributed solar is changing lives in emerging markets. In this conversation, we speak with Henry Louis, professor at Seattle University in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering and author of the textbook Off-Grid Electrical Systems in Developing Countries. While a textbook on electrical engineering might not seem at first like a particularly exciting topic for many, I found the conversation to be really interesting and Henry's perspectives on the off-grid energy sector to be thoughtful and deeply considerate. We speak about his non-profit work in Zambia, Kenya and the Philippines with Kilowatts for Humanity, his hands-on experience developing off-grid energy systems, common misunderstandings related to energy systems, And of course, we also cover some electrical engineering concepts, but I promise it's nothing like your usual physics lessons. Henry Louis' textbook is available to download for free until July 2020, so we'd highly encourage you to download a copy. We have provided a link to the book in our website. We hope you enjoy this episode. Henry, welcome to Distributing Solar. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here. You're a professor in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at Seattle University and have a bachelor's, master's and a PhD in electrical engineering. And you've been working in the energy access sector since 2008, co-founded the nonprofit Kilowatts for Humanity in 2015, and in 2018 published a textbook, Off-Grid Electrical Systems in Developing Countries. Could you perhaps start by telling us why you decided to focus on electrical engineering and then also how you got interested in developing countries? Yeah, sure. So like you said, I'm currently a professor at Seattle University, and I specialize in the area of electric power engineering. Before coming to Seattle University, I hadn't been involved in off-grid solar at all. And quite frankly, I was unaware that so many people struggle with electricity access. But that's not to say that I didn't see the connection between electricity access and prosperity. I saw that pretty early on. I got started in the power engineering industry at a fairly young age. I think I was I was actually 17 years old when I started working as a field technician for a company. And I commissioned power plants, mostly natural gas and coal-fired power plants and some geothermal. Uh, I did this while I was going to school to earn my bachelor's degree. So this hands-on approach that I had starting from a very young age really got me engaged with electrical engineering. And even back then, I remember seeing, you know, being around these massive generators and these huge power transformers and and hearing them humming and the crackle of a 500,000 volt power line. And I could just feel the energy. And I think I just saw that connection between the the power that I was helping produce and the modern society that we live in. After finishing graduate school, I worked for a renewable energy startup company here in Seattle, where I worked on wind energy forecasting. And then in 2008, like you said, I started at Seattle University. You have to understand that Seattle University is a Jesuit university, and my department really focuses on undergraduate academics. And being a Jesuit university, the faculty are encouraged to pursue activities really at the intersection of our expertise and humanity. And so when I started at Seattle University, I wasn't exactly sure what that meant. I had come from the large-scale utility world. Everything I had touched had been megawatts in size and a little bit in the background of people's mind. I didn't see 
you know, a research angle or, or what I could do to really impact the world's most vulnerable. Um, the person that introduced me to this concept of humanitarian engineering and energy poverty as well is a Jesuit priest named uh, Father Bert Otten. And Father Bert Otten is just an incredible individual. Uh, he's a priest, and he also has a PhD in electrical engineering. And he taught at Seattle University for a number of years, but we never overlap there. He now lives in Zambia. He's been there for quite some time now. And, and he's been doing what I would call appropriate technology projects for decades. And so I had the opportunity to spend some time with him in, in Zambia. And through that, seeing firsthand the challenges that energy poverty brings, I mean, it really clicked. I mean, it clicked. I thought this is a way that I could take my background in power engineering and apply it in a way that really helps the world's most underserved people. So I started working on what I would call like novelty student projects with Father Otten and, and some students at my university, like developing hand crank generators to charge cell phones from scavenged materials, that sort of thing. But over time, each project that we did was larger and more complex. And these weren't so much novelty projects, but these were projects that are actually starting to impact people's lives. We started using wind turbines and then solar. And then I just found myself more immersed in the industry and started working with groups like IEEE Smart Village and started publishing a lot. And I even spent a year living in Zambia as a Fulbright scholar where I looked at electricity access issues. And eventually we were doing so many projects that we spun off our efforts as a nonprofit organization called Kilowatts for Humanity. So that's that's how I got involved. And it's been just an amazing experience so far. Great. And I'd love to discuss a bit about your textbook, which you've called Off-Grid Electrical Systems in Developing Countries. Why did you decide to write the book and who's your intended audience? I think I wrote the book for three reasons. First, I felt the book like that really needed to be written. So if you look around, you'll find a few books on off-grid electricity access. Some subset of those are going to actually be technical in nature, but most of those are going to be case studies. There's no textbooks. There's no book that serves as an entry point into the field that starts with the basics. And I felt that that was a problem and there was a void that needed to be filled. I mean, when I started in the field of off-grid systems, I mean, I already had a PhD in electrical engineering. So I had a solid foundation of many of the technical elements, but really not their application in developing countries or, or really rural settings. So let me give you an example. If you think of a device like an inverter, it's a device that converts a DC to AC in an electrical system. So they're usually covered in textbooks on power electronics. But what I realized is that you might make very different design decisions if you're going to use an inverter in someone's garage or in an industrial facility than in an off-grid system. For example, in most off-grid systems are not in temperature-controlled environments. And so you might find that you would design that inverter differently or use it differently if you knew it was going to be in an off-grid situation. But that really was omitted from most of the textbooks that are really written for Western audiences and, and very mature economies. In developing countries, it's also very common to find square wave or modified sine wave inverters, but textbooks don't cover that. So I found myself, despite having a really solid technical background, it wasn't in the context that I was really interested in. And so there was a gap there. And it was also challenging jumping from source to source, uh, white papers, reports, standards, to see the complete picture of how you might implement off-grid systems. 
And so there was just a lot of gaps. And I felt this was really a substantial barrier uh, to the industry. So I, I saw a need for there to be like a single book that would pull all these different aspects together, these technical aspects together, how solar panels work and wind turbines work and batteries, inverters, charge controllers, putting them all into one place with a single narrative using consistent terminology and then written explicitly for the developing world context. So that, that's the first reason why I wrote it. The, the second reason is that if you look at projections for how many off-grid systems are needed to end energy poverty, it's a staggering number. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of mini grids alone. And so even if we had the capital and a favorable regulatory environment, do we really have a workforce that's ready to do this? Are our engineers prepared? Are entrepreneurs prepared? And so I felt like a textbook would be one way that I could really contribute to the industry. And then lastly, if there's anything that I love more than learning, it's teaching and just writing a textbook. Anybody that writes a textbook will tell you it is very challenging and you learn so much in that writing process. And I really, really enjoyed the experience. Does it cater towards the students you're working with at university or are you really looking to have engineers or maybe students in emerging markets to be using the textbook? Yeah, when I started writing the book, I definitely had students in mind. That is to say, students in their third or fourth year of their uh, undergraduate education, or maybe some graduate students even. So if you look at the book, you'll see that it has many elements that you would expect to see in any textbook. So there's worked out problems, exercises, uh, lots of equations, figures, images, that sort of thing. I also devote a few chapters early on into describing the greater context of energy poverty. And I actually do teach a class using the book, and I find that this topic resonates really well with students. Um, I think students are always eager to see how what they're learning can really be applied in the real world. And I think the idea that what they're learning can be used to solve a global problem is really inspiring to them. But I also wanted the book to be a resource for practitioners. I think very few people in the industry have any formal training in off-grid system design and implementation, at least from the technical engineering side. So the book has a very practical bent to it. For example, I spend time talking about how to interpret specifications sheets of batteries and solar panels, a lot of the terminology that manufacturers use. And I also include a lot of best practices. So I do get a lot of feedback from people in the industry saying they found the book useful as a reference. And you don't need to be an engineer for the book to be of value to you, but it certainly helps if you're not afraid of the technical details in it. And you've mentioned already that very few people working in the sector currently have formal training in either electrical engineering or these systems in particular. What do you typically find their training has been? How do people typically learn to put together energy systems? Is it all on the job, practical training, learning by testing and from other engineers who are already working in this sector? Or is there also a group of people that are coming out of university with some understanding about electrical systems and then applying it to their work? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of all of the above. And it also depends on when someone would answer that question. So 10 or 15 years ago, it seemed that it was all on-the-job training. Uh, that's how more or less I learned a lot of the companies that we worked with early on. It was clear that they were still learning as they were going. I think nowadays, it's maybe a little bit easier. Uh, there's some graduate programs that pay more attention to this, but I still think it's quite limited. I think that there's only a handful of universities 
particularly at the undergraduate level, that have courses on how to design off-grid systems in the developing world context. Uh, I think many of them use my textbooks. I have a sense of who they are and where they're located, but it's not a a core part of the curriculum yet. And I think that's, that's a shame because students are extremely interested in the topic and you're teaching a lot of the same engineering principles that you would teach in you know any other engineering course. It's just for an application that I think is often overlooked, but excites students tremendously. And is that typically in emerging markets or do you mean students in the US or Europe? Uh, all over, all over. And I, I think it is especially useful for students in emerging markets, right? Because they're going to get it and they're going to see the application of it they'll have the opportunity. They don't need to get on a plane to go somewhere else to see the, the challenges in off-grid living. And really, that's the, the type of person that I, I hope this book would resonate with, the type of person that I, I would hope would pick up the book and it would give them enough information to get started to go work for a company or start their own company that can uh, work to provide off-grid electricity access. And you've mentioned already that you teach a class that is focused on off-grid energy access and electrical systems. How well does your academic work in Seattle interact with the work that you're doing in developing countries as well? Do you have a lot of opportunities to go between countries, to go to sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, to work on projects there? Or is it primarily on a remote basis or through teaching programs and so on? I'm very fortunate to be at a university uh, like Seattle University that really values this type of work. So they don't just see it as a pet project or a hobby. I think I'm able to integrate it very well into my teaching, very well into my research. And I think it's valuable service that the the university values. I mean, they they see that it helps get students engaged. They see that um, I'm one of the early pioneers in terms of writing books and, and putting out material, educational material on it. And so it's, it's not something I just do as a hobby. I'm fully invested in it. You provide some trainings to organizations that are working in the space as well. Can you tell us more about these trainings that you provide to organizations working in off-grid solar or off-grid energy? What is the focus of the training? What do you cover? How does the training work? And maybe just give us some some details about the types of trainings you've provided. So I've spoken about off-grid systems all over the world, and it's often associated with a conference. So I'll do a half-day or full-day tutorial. Uh, sometimes it could be a seminar at a university or a guest lecture or for a professional association. I, I do a lot of those every year. Last year, I even teamed up with a organization called Engineering for Change and gave a six-part webinar series based on the book. And I've actually even spoken with school groups as young as middle school. But regardless of the group, I try to cover three general things. First, I introduce the context of energy poverty. Second, I cover some technical aspects. Now, obviously, the depth varies based upon the audience, but topics might include how solar cells work, the electrochemistry of batteries, how to estimate the load of users, the resources that power the wind turbines or the PV arrays, the mini-grid life cycle and design aspects. So we can get pretty deep in the technical meat of it if the audience has a technical background. And lastly, I really like to share experiences that I've had and experiences that my colleagues have had in actually doing these systems, uh, what to do and what not to do. And then sometimes I uh, co-present with experts on economics or the social implications of off-grid systems. 
So I do this a lot and I love doing it. And if people are interested, I have a bunch of material on my website that people can access for free. And, and if you're interested in having me talk to your group, please reach out to me and we can see if we can work something out. Around the the case studies and the examples of projects that you've worked on, within the book, you provide an overview of a number of electricity generation options. And I think typically when people talk about the off-grid energy space, they often think about solar. But as you note in your book, there are other technologies associated with the space from solar to hydro, wind, biomass. Can you tell us a bit about what are the factors to consider when you're choosing the generation source and how have you seen this dealt with in practice Sure. So selecting the generation source is perhaps the most important technical decision that gets made in an off-grid system. And my advice would be that you shouldn't let your background or obsession with one type of generation source dictate what you use. In other words, just because you have a background in wind doesn't mean you should by default use wind. So the, the saying is that if, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So you really shouldn't be doing that. To select the, the source that you're going to use, you would first consider the quality and availability of the underlying resource. So PV, for example, solar, for example, you need to know the average irradiance, you know, the strength of the sunlight and how that varies over the year. And this is really easy to do nowadays with so many solar databases that are out there and online tools. Uh, my group, we use uh, Homer and you just put in the latitude and longitude and you get a, a very reliable data set for that particular location. So solar, I think, is the easiest. And that's one reason why you see it used so much is it's quite easy to get the, the data on the solar resource. Now, wind is probably the most tricky. And I think that's partly due to the fact that there is a um, high sensitivity between wind speed and the power in the wind. It's actually a, a cubic relationship. So if the true wind speed is half of what you thought it would be, the power in that wind is actually an eighth of what you thought it was going to be. And so that's a huge swing. And so mistakes are really costly. And the wind resource varies uh, locally very quickly. So what I mean by that is it might be windy, really windy in one place, and then 50 meters away, it might not be suitable at all. And so you can't really use a wind resource map online to know if a particular location has an adequate wind resource. And so it's, it's really difficult to do the siting of uh, your wind turbine. So what you really need to do then is to set up a, a tall meteorological tower, 10 or 20 meters tall, for example, and then measure the wind speed. And because wind speed can vary throughout the year, you really should measure it for a year, for example. And that's a, a huge barrier to using wind. Now, obviously, there's going to be a few locations where you know it is a strong resource and maybe you don't need to do that. But having to set up a MET tower and record the data for a long period of time to see if it's windy is usually prohibitive for any organization that wants to implement a lot of off-grid systems. So even something like a genset, the fuel for a diesel or a petrol genset, that availability needs to be considered as well. Let's say you plan on using a genset. Well, you need to ask yourself, how easy is it to get the fuel to that site? Is it possible to do that during the rainy season? You know, where can you store the fuel? Can it be stored safely? You would also ask yourself, do these, does this country have fuel shortages that occur? How volatile is the pricing and so forth? Whatever resource you are thinking about, you really need to, to consider the quality and availability of it. And then once you understand that, 
then you start looking at other factors like the capital and operating costs. You might rule some things in or some things out based upon how much it's, it's going to cost to do. Other considerations would be the lifespan of the components. Is this something that you want to maintain and possibly replace every few years like a gen set? Or do you need something that will last 10 years plus like a, a solar panel? And do you find that the companies that you work with are actively considering these technologies and thinking critically, I suppose, about which is the best technology to be used? Or are they constrained by other factors such as where can I get the parts and which technologies do I already know about and have heard about? Most of the companies that we work with and in the regions of sub-Saharan Africa that we're involved in, the real obvious choice is solar. We have a feel that this is probably going to win out. But if we were in a location, for example, that had a hydro resource, I think we would give that a hard look. Uh, Microhydro is an excellent type of generation if the water resource is there. But a barrier to microhydro, of course, is that that whole system needs to be custom designed. You need to figure out how you're going to get the water from the stream all the way down to your turbine. And so it's a custom design job as well as you might even need to have a custom-made turbine that's compatible with the water resource in your generator and all that. I I think if you look at the industry, most of what you see now are companies that are specializing in solar. And uh, I think that makes sense because most of the places where we have a challenge with electricity access, there's a really good solar resource, a really good solar resource. So that's that's sort of the first one that that you look at. But there could be other ones that are viable as well. I think some mistakes that I've seen are people that are just obsessed with solar. And so, for example, we would talk to an organization that maybe is building a school or a medical clinic, and they want to put solar panels on the roof. And so we do some advising for them. And we dig a little bit deeper and we see, well, wait a minute, the grid itself is 50 meters away or 100 meters away or something like that. Why not just connect to the grid? It's going to save you a lot of money, and mostly because the grid is going to be subsidized. And if the grid isn't reliable, then just use a battery or inverter system. But but some people don't get over that. They say, well, we are, we're going to do solar, even if it's much, much more expensive. They don't even consider these other options like a grid connection or even a backup diesel generator set, which might only run a few hours a year, but could save a lot of money in capital cost. I would love to hear more about some of those examples, perhaps, that you've encountered. What are the most common misconceptions or misunderstandings about off-grid energy systems that you've encountered? And what would you really recommend that people think twice about before assuming that, for example, as you say, solar is always the, the best option or the best solution? Sure. Well, I think there's a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings out there, especially for people that are new and some people that have been in the industry for a while even. I'll pick out a a few. I think there is a misconception about system availability or, or reliability. I think there's a tendency for engineers to, well, over engineer systems. And it seems natural to want to design an off grid system that's available, you know, 99% of the time or even more. But in reality, increasing your availability by a few percent, say from 97 to 99%, actually could increase your capital costs by maybe 50% or more, just because you need larger batteries and panels. And there's actually some research that I've, I've worked on that has shown that for some, some cases. So 
striving for extremely high reliability is really limiting the impact of your resources. And most of us don't have unlimited budgets, right? So you are uh, impacting fewer people because you want your system to be so uh, over-designed and so uh, available. I think really understanding that trade-off between your upfront cost and the reliability of the system is important. And you should also be comfortable saying, well, it's okay if our system isn't available every hour of the day in the middle of the rainy season. It's okay. I think in most countries anyway, where electricity access is a problem, the grid is nowhere near 97% reliable. It's it's could be far, far lower. Uh, so if you really are trying to have a broad impact, you need to understand these trade-offs. I think another misconception is over-relying on surveys to estimate the load of an off-grid system. Here's what I mean. Let's say that you're planning on implementing a mini-grid. In order to properly design it, you need to have at least an estimate of the average daily load. So how much electricity are, are your customers or are your users going to use? A very natural approach is to survey these users. So more or less what you're trying to do is you're trying to estimate the electricity that they're going to use based upon the devices like the lights, the radios, the televisions that they plan on owning once they have electricity, and then how long each day they're going to use them. And this seems like a very reasonable approach, and indeed it's an approach that many organizations take. But research has shown that this is a really unreliable way of doing it. I've worked on studies that have shown when you use this method, the average error is often over 300%. I mean, and that's actually 300% sort of on average. So it's not like there's just one or two people that are, are really bad at estimating their consumption, but hundreds of percent higher. And so if you think about it, that means you're able to serve far fewer people with that same amount of money because your system is really over-designed. And there's lots of potential reasons for why this survey method is really error-prone. I mean, just as an example or just uh, one way of thinking about it is if you went to the average American and said, you know what, how much cow dung or kerosene would you use if you didn't have electricity? I mean, do you think that people would have a, a reasonable response or an accurate response? Probably not. Uh, so in the research that we've done, we, we found that people are, are not very good at estimating the amount of time that they're going to use a device or accurately predicting what devices they will have. In fact, we did research where we did a, a pre-implementation survey where we, we tried to estimate their load or predict their load, and we compared that to what they actually used, and it was off by a couple hundred percent. Uh, but then what we did is we revisited them after the, the grid had been installed and more or less redid the survey. So now they know what appliances they have, and they have some familiarity with electricity because they've been using it for the past year, for example. And we asked them to, again, estimate their hours of use. And even after doing that, we were off by about 100%. So it's just not a, a real reliable way of doing things. And so you see people designing systems based upon these surveys, uh, believing perhaps that the value that they calculate is true. <laughs> and uh, they really need to take it with a grain of salt. What are the alternatives that you would suggest other people use if they can't use the survey approach, which I think is pretty commonly used in many countries or many companies? Yeah, it's it's extremely common. And I think really what we showed in our research was that we weren't trying to advocate against doing it. I think there's a lot of benefits to visiting your potential users and talking to them about how they plan on using 
the electricity once they have it. And even generating that estimate is, you know, it's a useful exercise, but you have to take it with a grain of salt and you have to be skeptical of it. And you can't be surprised when the value of uh, average daily load doesn't match what you thought. You can do surveys, but just understand that the value calculate is going to be very error prone and probably an overestimate. Luckily, there are some alternatives. And I think the most promising alternative that is surely being used by some of the bigger players is to take a data-driven approach where if you've done this enough and you have remote monitoring in place and you, you know the hourly or the daily consumption of each of your users, you start having some historical data that you can look back on. And although you're providing access to a new village, maybe you have a village that you've already worked in that was similar. And so you just take that village that you've worked in as a proxy for the new village and you do your estimation based upon that. And we actually did that in one of our studies and we saw that that was the most effective way of predicting load is just looking at similar locations in the past and what they used. But of course, in order to do this, you need to have had other villages or other communities that you've provided access to electricity to, or you need to have a database that's publicly available for that information. And it's still hard to come by, especially if you're a newcomer to the field. You clearly have quite a bit of practical experience from your work in Sub-Saharan Africa, and you've worked to deploy off-grid solutions there. In particular, you've worked quite a lot in Zambia. And can you tell us about the work that you've done with Kilowatts for Humanity? Yeah. So uh, in addition to being a professor, I am president of a nonprofit organization called Kilowatts for Humanity. We are a volunteer-run nonprofit based here in Seattle, Washington. And I founded Kilowatts for Humanity with two other people from Seattle University, Jenna Isaacson and Steve Sabia. And so KWH really grew out of the work that we were doing at Seattle University. Now, before I get into describing what Kilowatts for Humanity does, I'd like to offer a few thoughts about why we decided to spin off Kilowatts for Humanity as a separate entity from a university, because this is one thing that I feel strongly about. I I think that international development projects in at-risk communities are probably not appropriate for most universities to be doing. I think in most cases, the mission alignment is questionable. Universities exist to educate and to conduct research, and off-grid communities really deserve better than to be treated as sandboxes for intellectual curiosity or to serve as field trip destinations and photo ops for our students. I mean, universities know that these pictures and stories and opportunities for their students are good for PR and attract potential students, but that's really not what a project should be about. I think that most students who might be very dedicated to working on an off-grid system or a certain community while they're in school, it doesn't carry over after they have their diploma. Um, So very few come back to sustain a project that they are working on as an undergraduate. And then all it takes is for funding to change or a faculty member to leave before that community no longer has that connection and they're completely cut off. I do see a role for higher ed in off-grid electrification. I think students, faculty, and staff can learn and can contribute a great deal to ending energy poverty, but it needs to be done appropriately and sustainably. So I, I think universities really should partner with external organizations whose mission is to implement and sustain off-grid systems. And, and this way, it keeps the project focused on energy access and development and not on uh, student learning. 
And I think it comes down to a difference between a project mentality and a program mentality, whereas a nonprofit, they're going to run these programs. It's going to be something that is baked into their core business. And for the university, it's sort of a, a side gig that, that they are involved in. So with this in mind, we decided to spin off Kill Lots for Humanity. Uh, we still work very closely with Seattle U, and it's worked out well for both organizations. But we felt that it needed to be an independent home for this effort because it was so important. So we founded KWH five years ago, and our goal was to bring sustainable electricity to communities in developing countries in, in a way that fosters economic opportunity, uh, empowerment, and dignity. So we have electricity access programs in four communities in Zambia and one in Kenya. And our model is to partner with in-country nonprofit organizations. So these are organizations that know the rural communities really well and are committed to them in the long term. So we work with our partner then to identify communities that we think an off-grid system would be viable in. And believe me, just because a community is off-grid does not mean that they are a good candidate for an off-grid system, at least one that will be sustainable. So as a nonprofit, what we do is we raise money for the system, mostly through grants and individual donors, and then our engineers design the systems. And we, we hire Zambian companies to install the systems through a competitive proposal process. And at the end of the day, it's our partners that own and operate the systems, not KWH. So in this way, it's really Zambians helping Zambians. It's not Americans parachuting in and saving the day. Our partner really is the face of the project. We try to be behind the scenes as much as we're able to. And so we use what you might call the energy kiosk model of electrification. So if you think of electricity access as a continuum, on one side of that continuum, you might have picosolar, and on the other, you might have large mini grids or even the grid itself. And an energy kiosk fits somewhere above a solar home system. So instead of being a few tens or hundreds of watts in size, energy kiosks are typically kilowatts in size, but they would fit in below mini grids because the reach of a kiosk is limited. In an energy kiosk, there's no real distribution network. And this obviously reduces capital costs and maintenance. And it also avoids a lot of regulations that come into play when you uh, start selling electricity. But what the kiosk does do is it provides power to a suite of businesses. I mean, we think of it in a way like a, like a rural strip mall. Uh, we're providing power to a number of shops there, uh, grocery stores that sell cold drinks or freeze meat, recharge cell phones tailors, barbershops, hair salons, water pumps, ice makers, these kinds of things are powered by the kiosk. So we really have that focus on spurring economic activity in the rural area. And so this helps create jobs. Um, a single system can spur thousands of dollars of economic activity each year in a rural village. And we do work with our, our partner to develop a business plan with that local community so that some of the revenue from these activities gets put back into the system. It gets saved for maintenance and, and replacement. And then one of the other things that we do, importantly, as Kilowatts for Humanity is we offer free advising to organizations that might be interested in off-grid electricity. So as an example, we might partner with an Engineers Without Borders chapter that is working on a medical clinic. And they're really good at designing the building, but they're maybe lacking the expertise in designing the solar aspect of it. So we will work with them and we'll come up with the design and share best practices and so forth. So if some of your listeners might be interested in reaching out to us if there's a project that they have in mind and they want some advice on. 
It was interesting to hear about off-grid communities, sometimes not actually requiring off-grid electrical systems or an off-grid mini-grid or even a solar kiosk. Can you speak a bit more about that and how you make your analyses on which communities you should go into and where there is the highest opportunity or potential for success? There's obviously the need in so many communities, and it sounds harsh, but the reality is many of these off-grid communities are too poor to really sustain one of these systems. Now, of course, you could go parachute in an energy kiosk or a bunch of solar home systems and solar lanterns and sort of walk away, but we really want it to be sustainable. And a key cornerstone of sustainability is financial sustainability. So we know that the second you install those batteries, the clock is ticking on when they're going to fail. You might have a few years even. So without a good plan of saving up money to pay for the replacement of those batteries, the system is going to going to fail in just a few years. And I don't think that's a good outcome. So many communities, there's just not enough economic clout to to really afford these systems, right? So we look for ones that we think are able to do it. We look for ones that have an internal organizational structure that is supportive and conducive for uh, an energy kiosk. So who is going to manage it locally? Uh, what kind of training do they have? What kind of training do they need? We look at some of the social indicators is this what the community actually wants? <laughs> so we do focus groups, usually through our partner. We'll have them do surveys and we try to figure out, is this a need for the community? Is this a location that we think a kiosk can be sustainable in? What sort of businesses might be powered or might get started up and be an off taker for the electricity? We, you know, we look to see how far away the power lines are. We, we don't want to install a, a system and have the grid come six months later. So these are all factors that we look at in trying to decide which communities are good candidates. To change the pace of our conversation slightly, in a different life, I also studied physics at school and university, and so I couldn't resist the opportunity to dive into some more technical terms. But to make sure it's still interesting for our listeners, I'll run through some frequently encountered electrical or physics terms. And for each of them, if you could please give us a quick one-minute explanation, I'll, <laughs> I'll time you um, and tell us why it's important. I'll do my best. Great. So to begin with, AC-DC coupling. So one way of categorizing a mini grid is its coupling. And the coupling of a mini grid can be AC-DC or AC-DC. And it just refers to the, the nature of the electricity that's generated by the power source. So solar panels produce DC. They're going to be DC coupled. A hydro turbine is probably going to be producing AC, so it's going to be connected to an AC coupled system. And if you have an AC-DC coupled system, it means you have a mix of DC and AC generation sources. Great. That was only 30 seconds. That's very good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I could keep going, yeah. <laughs> so the next one, tell us about load factors. Yeah, sure. Uh, this is an interesting one. So uh, the load factor, technically, is this the ratio of the average power to the peak power? And so the load factor really never exceeds one, and it's usually expressed as a percent. But the load factor is useful because it relates to the most important characteristics of the load, the average load and the peak load. And so what you really want is you want your load to not have a high peak. 
as a familiar example, you can think of a, a church and the saying goes, you have to make your church large enough for Easter. So you build this massive church because you know on Easter, you can't turn people away. And then the rest of the year, it sits sort of empty or not empty, but not used to capacity, right? So you can think of that as the load. Um, that's a tremendous waste of resources to have a really high peak that doesn't occur that often. You'd rather it be consistent you know, throughout the day, throughout the year, et cetera. Perfect. And next, can you tell us about grid tied inverters? Yeah, sure. Uh, so anytime you want to convert DC to AC, you need a device called an inverter. And uh, inverters come in all sorts of uh, shapes and sizes and different types. But a grid tied inverter is one where the inverter is smart enough to see if there is AC generation on the AC side of it. So most mini grids, you don't need a grid tied inverter because there's no grid around. You are the grid. But if you want to connect eventually to a grid, maybe your mini grid is going to expand or the grid will eventually come to you, then you need to have a grid tied inverter. Make sure that your waveforms are all synchronized and that you're controlling the exchange of power. For the most part, though, off-grid systems really don't need uh, grid-tied inverters. I'm finding these very interesting, actually. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. What I do for a living. That's good, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. And maybe just a final one. Tell us about bypass diodes. Oh, okay. So what a bypass diode does is it helps your array to function when there is some shading on it. So a, a PV array or PV module is made up of a bunch of individual cells, uh, solar cells, and they're all connected in series. And so if you have shade on even one cell, it acts like a bottleneck for all the current flowing through the other cells. So a solar panel doesn't need to be totally shaded for its power to drop. It just takes one cell to be shaded. And so one way of overcoming that is you put in bypass diodes, which basically allows the current to get by that bottleneck. That's great. And I was going to ask you about single phase full bridge rectifiers, but we'll let your listeners look <laughs> that one up in your, in your textbook. For we'll sure. leave that as a teaser. But yeah, speaking about your textbook, I'd love to understand a bit more about the process of putting the book together and hearing more about how long it took and when did you come up with the idea. So maybe if you could start with that and just tell us a bit about how long it took you to write the book and what was the process of writing the book like? Yeah, I I would think that it took about three years from when I started the book to when I finished writing it. I think I had the idea in my head when I first started in the industry and was sort of frustrated that there wasn't one of these books already written. Once that idea was in my head, anytime I did any field experience, I thought, well, would this be a good, would this be something I should talk about in the book? And so I took a lot of pictures and I kept a very detailed notebook of topics that I thought could have been interesting. And the book really came together when I was doing my Fulbright in Zambia, living in Zambia. And that's when I sort of started formally putting together a book in terms of class notes. So I was going to teach a class when I got back to the United States on, on this very topic. And so that served as the main outline for the book. And then like any book, you talk to a publisher and you come up with an agreement and then you just start writing. And I was uh, supported by my university to do the book. I had an endowed chair position that gave me more time to write. And I just put my head down and I wrote for about a year. That was the main thing that I did for about a year. 
And I'm quite happy with the result. Was it mostly information that you were already familiar with or had encountered with your field experience? Or was there anything that you needed to research or that was difficult, complicated? Yeah. So you think you know everything or you uh, you think you know a lot and then you have to explain it in detail and you really, really have to know it. I had to do a lot of research, a lot, a lot of research. And it was fun to do. It was really fun to do to just really dig in deep. And then the, the writing of it was also a fun exercise because it's very different than writing a technical peer-reviewed paper. Writing a textbook is um, one of my my mentors made the comment that great books aren't written, they're rewritten. And I kind of had that mindset of, okay, I just got to keep writing and writing and writing and revising, revising, revising. And like any book, I look at it now and I'm, I'm proud of it, but there are certainly things that I would do differently in a second edition, little typos here and there, but also other concepts that I think should have been included that, that I didn't have the space for, or I might present a few things differently, but by and large, I, I'm happy with it. And I think it accomplished what I set out to do. What are the kind of topics that you wish you could cover that you didn't have a chance to? Well, I would have written more about some of the specialty applications. Uh, I do talk a little bit about vaccine, uh, off-grid vaccine refrigerators. I would have, I would have liked to have expanded that because I, I do, you see that a lot. I would have written more about solar pumps and applications like that. And I had a whole chapter pretty much written on development practices and that more or less got cut. So I would like to have a little bit more there. And then there's a final chapter in the book where I talk about some of these other considerations that probably could have been two or three times as long. Yeah, I'd love to discuss more about that. Well, you've mentioned some in your book, and I assume those were selected to be the most important. But can you speak a bit about some of these other considerations that you've mentioned? And which do you think are the most important? So like I said, this chapter could have been two or three times as long, but I was already at about 500 pages. And that's plenty, (laughs) plenty to write. Uh, But it was really fun to write this chapter. And uh, you know, the truth is that there's so many other considerations in implementing an off-grid system beyond the strictly technical. And so in this chapter, I really wanted to introduce some of these, these considerations and also offer some advice in how you should approach off-grid system development. So let me talk about a couple. And, and some of these are covered in the book, but maybe not at the detail that I'll talk about now, or maybe I'll explain it in a slightly different way. So one topic in in that chapter is the use of donated equipment. And this comes up a lot when I'm speaking with groups and they're doing their first project. So this might be a student club or a church group or some other nonprofit that maybe doesn't specialize in solar but needs solar power for their clinic or school that they're, they're building. So I usually will ask them, how are you going to source the equipment? And some of them will say, well, we have this connection with the solar manufacturer or some other business that can make an in-kind donation of the solar panels or the batteries. And in some of the cases, this donation is what makes the project possible because it saves them thousands of dollars in, in costs. But I think what is overlooked is that that donated product needs to find its way to Zambia or Haiti or wherever. Usually the manufacturer isn't that generous to, to ship it for you. And so this process really isn't trivial. And if it's not trivial, it is at the very least costly. And it can add a tremendous amount of uncertainty to your schedule. I mean, weeks or months, you don't have a lot of control over the, the shipping and, and what happens after it gets to port. Import duties can be 25%. And so unless you have uh, waivers and figured out the waiver process, you're going to pay 25% of the value. And that 
you might not have been anticipated because the equipment was free. Once you figure that out, getting your equipment through customs uh, can be a whole other problem. So uh, you might have to wait weeks or months and you're paying a daily holding fee and maybe the custom agent wants a bribe or something like that. And meanwhile, the batteries that you had donated to you are just self-discharging on a port somewhere. And so this can end up being a very, very bad situation. You also have to ask yourself, well, what's going to happen if that donated panel or inverter or whatever fails? Was there a warranty that came with it? And, and even if there is a warranty, how do you get it back? How do you, how do you replace it? And so I really try to discourage organizations from relying on these donated equipment, especially if the donated equipment is substandard in some other way. Another topic I discuss uh, in that chapter is capacity building. Off-grid projects offer the opportunity to do more than just provide electricity. And one way that they can have a broader impact is by increasing the capacity of a country to do these projects themselves. So it's not always just foreigners doing it. But unfortunately, in a lot of projects that I see, uh, especially done by organizations uh, abroad, this capacity building part really isn't there. So instead of hiring, at say, a Zambian company to install solar panels, and trust me, no matter where you're going to be working, there's going to be a company that would be willing to install solar for you. So instead of doing that, you bring your students or your volunteers or something, and they do it. And I get it. I mean, there's an appeal of doing some work with your hands and makes great pictures and, and all of that. But the thing is, in most cases, the students or volunteers don't really know what they're doing. They're not professional installers in the United States. They're not electricians. And even if they are electricians, they're probably not licensed to do their work in Zambia or, or wherever. So, I mean, just imagine that reverse scenario where would you let someone from a church group in Haiti come to your house and install solar panels or in, in your child's school or something like that? No way. They would need to have some sort of qualifications and uh, warranty of, of their work. So we miss that opportunity. So I think the, re- the right thing to do is to hire licensed, reputable local companies to do it. I mean, you can still go to the installation if you want. In fact, you probably should just to do your due diligence to make sure that the company is doing what they said they were going to do. And even just going for the commissioning can make for some very lovely pictures if that's really what you're interested in. But you have this added benefit of supporting a solar company. And keep in mind that company really has to compete with free volunteer labor from organizations that do solar from abroad, right? So they're they're working against these nonprofits from abroad and it's really hurting them. So I, I would really encourage organizations to avoid this reverse outsourcing scenario. At KWH, when our volunteers travel, they're not installing solar panels and batteries. We just do the commissioning as part of our due diligence. Uh, We do training, and we will also install some specialty remote monitoring equipment that we use for research. But other than that, it's all local people that we hire. I think one more consideration that is important, and this is really a a mindset to have, and, and that mindset is you need to realize that there is the opportunity to be doing more harm than good in implementing an off-grid system. And the technical aspects are often the easiest ones to resolve. So keeping that in mind is, I think, extremely, extremely important. Think about ways that what you're doing could, could actually be harmful and then think twice about whether you really should be doing it if that's the case. And I often use this, this example... So whenever I, I travel abroad, it's always fun to 
to take a, a camera or a phone and take pictures, especially of the kids and, and show them on the screen what they look like. Cause in many of these areas, they don't have mirrors at home or anything like that. And they, you know, it's fun and everyone gets a good giggle and it's a good way to interact with the people. And I always felt that that was such like an ephemeral experience that you just kind of show them the camera and, and they get to see what they look like and then you kind of walk away. And so what I did is I, I thought, well, let's find a way of making that more lasting. And so I researched this pocket-sized printer where it's Bluetooth connected to my phone, and it's basically a Polaroid camera. So I could take a picture and then wait a few minutes and print it out and then give it to the person that I took a picture of. And so after I got this printer, I went back to one of these communities, and, and there was a bunch of children playing, and we took a picture of the kids playing, and we printed it out. And we said, okay, well, which of these kids do we want to give this picture to? And my colleague, Peter, said, oh, let's give it to this kid in the green shirt because he's got like the best smile in it. So I handed the the picture to the kid in the green shirt. And then what happened? Well, what happened is all the other kids started punching him, trying to rip it away from him, right? <laughs> and it wasn't bad. You know, of course, they're, they're kids. They're, they're kind of playing around. But still, it speaks to this idea that I had the technology right. I knew what technology I needed to accomplish my goal. I needed to have a Bluetooth connected printer and all this stuff. Um, so I had the technology right. But in that moment, I just lost sight of what is obvious to me now as a parent, but what would happen doing that. And so again, if you think of your off-grid system, right, you could get the technology right. But if you're not thinking of the ways that the use of that technology or the presence of that technology could go sideways, you could be doing more harm than good. But I did learn from from that. And so now whenever I do this, I do family portraits and I give the picture to like the mom because no one's going to mess with the mom. <laughs> right. So you learn from your mistakes. Yeah, that's certainly very interesting and very important, I think, to think about. As a lot of people have noted about the sector, there's what I think of or what I call a romanticization of people living in off-grid communities or in unelectrified areas. And I guess we often think we have the ability to just go over and you know solve their problems magically, as you say, but not realizing the context or actually what's going on in, in more detail. You very deliberately titled your book Off-Grid Electrical Systems in Developing Countries and noted in your preface that developing countries often has connotations of being either degrading or sometimes used in a negative way. And I think terms like emerging markets or frontier markets are now more commonly used and somewhat in vogue. Can you tell us about how you think about that and why did you decide to use the term developing countries still? Well, as I write in the book, I'm not completely comfortable with the term developing countries, but ultimately I decided to use it because I didn't think there was a better alternative, especially for the title of a textbook. And I didn't use emerging market because countries like Mexico, China, and even Russia are usually considered emerging markets, but these countries also have very high electricity access rates. Uh, frontier markets is perhaps a, a better term. Uh, countries considered frontier markets generally also have low electrification rates, but I think that term in and of itself is less familiar. And I think more philosophically, when we use the word market, it tends to cast the families and communities and countries that struggle with electricity access in terms of like dollar signs and not people. And I honestly think that sends uh, the wrong message. But of course, developing country has its own baggage. Some people think it's a derogatory term, but many others actually think of it as empowering because it shows opportunity and potential. And that's the side of uh, the, the interpretation that I fall on, the, the more hopeful side. 
And of course, developing. I don't mean that to mean that a country has you know an Im- immature cultural or familial tradition. I also don't presume that the so-called developed countries are free from problems around equity and access to healthcare, education, and so on. And I guess lastly, I'll point out that developing countries actually the term that is suggested to be used uh, by the Associated Press Style Guide. And I think that just speaks to the fact that um, although there's not a strict definition of developing country, many people have a sense of what you're talking about. And I felt that that was appropriate uh, to use for the title of the book. And and finally, how can people get or access a copy of your book? Yeah, so uh, it's part of Springer's initiative to contribute to uh, to easing the the COVID nineteen pandemic. They've made five hundred textbooks available online, the digital versions. And so between now and at least July, my book is one of those five hundred. So uh, they can actually anyone can access a a free full. It's a full uh, online copy of the book. And uh, I think maybe we can include a link on the on the website. Absolutely. I would love to do that. Great. So uh, we'd love to close the conversation by asking you just some what we call quick fire questions, but really just to get a, a better understanding of you as a person and your background and some context behind, I guess, you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so just to start us off, where did the name Kilowatts for Humanity come from? You know, it it was, I remember it very well. We were spinning out of Seattle University and we had a meeting of, of people that had been involved and we had to come up with a name. And Steve Sabia came up with a list of, of options for us. He's one of the co-founders. And we, we voted and debated on what we liked. And Kilowatts for Humanity won by a landslide. To me, I really like how we use the acronym KWH because as an electrical engineer, I mean, that's kilowatt yeah, like that hours. Too. Yeah, it's, it's really clever. And I think the blank for humanity, people know that this is, they're not surprised that we're a nonprofit and it kind of speaks to what we do. You get sort of a sense that, okay, maybe these are somehow, uh, you know, electricity related nonprofit. And that's what we are. I mean, <laughs> in the simplest terms. So I love it. I, I really like it. That's great. And are there any books that you recommend to our listeners or books that have changed your thinking around the off grid sector? Yeah, one of the first books that I read when I was getting involved in this was Out of Poverty by Paul Pollock, uh, who un- unfortunately passed away last year. But I mean, he's, it's just an incredible book about his mindset when he was, you know, designing and uh, distributing treadle pumps uh, throughout Asia. And, you know, he's got this great quote that he says, and it's, you know, if you don't understand the problem you set out to solve from your customer's perspective, if your product or service will dramatically increase their income, and if you can't sell a hundred million of them, then don't bother. And just that ambitious, you know, we need to find solutions that are user centric, that scale so rapidly, that should be our goal and that should be our aim. And I think that's always really stuck with me is, you know, let's, let's see how we can make a big difference. And the other book that I've found really interesting is The Impact of Electricity, Development, Desires, and Dilemmas by Tanya Winter. And this book looks at what happens to communities after electricity has come to them. Not necessarily like mini grids, but grid extension or whatever. And throughout the book, she talks about all the different ways that people have changed socially after this community. And I believe Zanzibar gets access to electricity. So it 
it impacted how they pray. Just having a, an electricity meter in people's houses, all of a sudden the government was was much more involved in their lives because you'd have a utility worker come every month or so into your house and read the meter. So the level of intrusion there was much, much higher. Other things like uh, when people slept, how many meals they had, and even the frequency of, of intercourse changed when they had electricity. So it's just a fascinating read if you're interested in the non-technical uh, aspects of electricity access. That, that sounds like a really fascinating book, actually. I'd love to read that. Great. So to close our conversation, what are your predictions for the off-grid solar sector for the next five years? Well, let me tell you about my hopes and not a prediction. I'm, I'm terrible at predictions, even though I work for a wind forecasting uh, company. Here, here's my hopes. And I'm going to take more of a philosophical uh, approach to all of this. So I'm not going to throw out numbers of people that have access or whatever. But I, I want to talk about some of the, the discussions that we should be having as a sector. And these actually come from sort of an ethical viewpoint, which maybe is related to my employment at a Jesuit university. So I think we need to be talking about e-waste more than we are right now. What's going to happen to these tens of millions or hundreds of millions of solar lanterns and solar home systems when when they fail? You know, what's what's our pathway for that realistically? Because if you spend a lot of time in a, a rural community, you'll see batteries just sort of discarded in, in the brush here and there. And there's not it's not like they have a really good infrastructure for handling waste in general or e-waste in particular. So what's our plan as a, as a sector for this? Where do we where do we see it going? There's conversations that are surely, surely happening right now, but I'd really like for it to, to be given more attention. Another issue that I think we need to be talking more about is the ethics of data collection. The solar home systems that have remote disconnect, pay as you go, we are collecting a tremendous amount of information from these customers. And I think we're going to be using them and already to some extent using them to generate credit profiles, which is going to unlock a lot of finance for these for these people. But do they really understand that we're collecting this information and going to be using it in that way? It gives me pause anyway, if you, if you think about some of the, the tech companies that are having a, a pretty bad record of protecting data privacy, dipping their toe in this area. So I, I think we need to think about this from an ethical standpoint and sort of related to that with remote disconnect. If, well, let's just say that the utility here in Seattle has a tough time disconnecting anyone from electricity. And I think that's actually a, it's a fair regulation to have because people are so dependent on it. But with pay as you go and remote disconnect. I mean, you just, it's just code in a program and it just disconnects people. And we really need to think about the ethics of that. I know in many parts of the world that say natural gas, for example, or heating oil is a lifeline and you cannot disconnect people in the, in the winter when their livelihoods really, really depend upon it. So we should examine these these issues as an industry and really <laughs> come to some sort of conclusion or, or at least examine the pros and cons in a more formal way than we've done. We just sort of assume that, well, if it limits our risk uh, of investment, then it's a good thing. But we really need to be thinking about some of these other more energy justice related issues. And I, I really hope that in the next five years, we, we make good progress on having these discussions. I think that's a really, really important note to end on. And I think, as you say, exactly right, often overlooked within the sector and within the industry. So thank you for, for bringing it to our attention. 
Thank you so much, Henry. You've been really generous with your time and it's been really fascinating and enjoyable to hear about both your experiences, but your thoughts about the sector. Thanks for joining us on Distributing Solar. Yeah, thank you. That was our conversation with Henry Louis, professor at Seattle University and co-founder of the not-for-profit Kilowatts for Humanity. As we mentioned, you can access a copy of his textbook, Off-Grid Electrical Systems in Developing Countries from the Springer website. It's available via the link on our website for free until July 2020. If you have any questions or comments, please contact us at www.distributingsolar.com. We have notes from our podcast, useful resources and contact details available. We look forward to hearing from you.